Hello, this month we read The Elephant in the Brain by Robin Hanson and Kevin Simler. The main idea of this book is that we all have what they call an elephant in the brain. Now, what's an elephant in the brain? Well, perhaps you've heard the expression, the elephant in the room, which refers to that thing that everyone is obvious of, but no one wants to bring up in discussion. Another good story example is the classic story of the emperor who has no clothes on, where everyone pretends that the emperor is wearing the finest robes of silk because they don't want to be revealed to know something in particular, to have an impure mind, and it's only the child who points out that the emperor is actually wearing nothing at all. Similarly, Robin Hanson and Kevin Simler take the role of the child in this example, except instead of pointing out that the emperor is wearing no clothes, they want to point out that we have large hidden motivations that we don't want to discuss or acknowledge within ourselves and within each other. And as they bring up in the book, we're fond to point out the hypocrisy of people when they're on the other side. For instance, we'll point out the hypocrisy of the opposite political side or another person's religion when they claim to believe one thing but act in contrary to it. However, this isn't the point of Hansen and Simler's book here is not to point out the partisan uh, hypocrisy that we all witness around it. Rather, it's to realize that there's many situations where we are all incentivized to not acknowledge the hypocrisy because we're all hypocrites. So this is a very interesting situation and it leads to what both Hansen and Simler discovered are some persistent and if you don't understand this idea, quite confusing problems in the way our society is organized, the way our institutions are run, and the kinds of decisions that we make. So first of all, we might want to start off by asking why would we have elephants in the brain in the first place? Why would we have these secret motivations that are compelling us to act in these ways? Well, if you look at the content of a lot of these motivations, there is an a rationale from an evolutionary psychology standpoint to explain why we might have these motivations and also to explain why they might be hidden. So the evolutionary psychology explanation is that often our acts of altruism or our higher motivations have a logic to them. For instance, if we want people around us to be healthy, that is an important thing. That's, that's good for the survival of the groups around us, but even more important or perhaps an equally important motive, is that we want people to know that we care about them. And so this can sometimes align in that we care about someone so that we get them to do the things that will make them healthier or better off. But other times it has a pernicious influence because if we can help them in a way that seems like we're not helping, or if we are helping them if we seem like we're helping them rather, but we're not actually doing anything that offers any benefit, it can lead to the stubborn persistence of this kind of behavior, even if it doesn't actually help. So in the book, uh, Hansen and Simler bring up an example where we all understand, which is, you know, a child running, trips, stubs, stubs its toe, really hurts, really hurts, it starts crying. So the mom comes by and kind of gives it a little kiss and says, you know what, uh, I kissed the boo-boo, now it's better. And so we can un understand that part of this is not simply the immediate appearance of pain relief. What's happening is, you know, the child is crying because it wants some reassurance, it's feeling pain, and the mother wants to indicate to the child that it cares about her. Now, it's not necessarily the case that 
there's anything magical going on to alleviate the pain, but both parties are feeling better off. And so we have this kind of ritual about it. Now, where Hansen and Simler differ is that they argue that much of our healthcare system, for instance, operates on a similar ritual, that we often have wasteful, unhelpful healthcare that looks a very similar function to this kissing of the boo-boo, where it is something that feels really good. It feels like we're offering care, that we care about people, either in society at large or the loved ones in our lives, but that the actual act may not be that beneficial. Importantly, this explains also a contradiction that certain things which don't really have this quality of boo-boo kissing, but maybe are very effective, for instance, you know, pal uh, palliative care or, or for instance, uh, exercise and proper nutrition and preventing a lot of diseases don't have the same emphasis that we have on expensive, costly medical treatments from an expert. Now, their explanation for this is that there's sort of these two motivations. There's the higher motivation to seek care, to seek health from medicine, but then there's also this hidden motivation to signal to other people that we're caring human beings that care about their health, even when the things that we're doing maybe are not that effective. Now, Hansen and Sindler do not stop at healthcare. They don't focus merely on that one, although that is the one that in my conversation with Hansen, which will be going up later, he brought up as one of the uh, largest that people have a hard time accepting. However, this also leads to another question. So if we have these motivations, why are we not conscious of them? Why do we why are we fail to acknowledge the elephant in the brain, especially in our own brains, when presumably knowing more about our own behavior and why we would do things would be beneficial? So here again, there's an evolutionary psychology explanation, and this is that by not being fully aware of the reasoning behind some of our motivations, we gain plausible deniability. Of course, if we know that we're doing something for somewhat less altruistic reasons, it's a lot harder for us to deny it later if someone accuses us of violating norms or of breaking a standard practice. Now, I, I think that there might even be the possibility that these uh, hidden motivations came about at an earlier level in our, in our evolution, that there's a possibility that when we were evolving, we evolved these motivations on a quite a subconscious level, and that later when we are developing sort of more elaborative cognitive reasoning processes, that these cognitive reasoning processes function more like a press agency rather than as the actual full account of what's going on in our mind. Rather, the right way to think about this, I believe, uh, not necessarily from the book, but the right way to think about it that has helped me is that it may be that these motivations are hidden because most motivations we have are hidden and that it, they only arise as vague feelings that we don't really understand where they come from. However, our conscious mind is constantly trying to project the best image that it can have of ourselves. And so that might not be its function to totally understand what is motivating its behavior, but rather its function might be to explain it in a socially acceptable way. So I want to just go over a few of the ideas that are touched on in this book before I move on to the discussion that I had with uh, one of the co-authors, Robin Hansen, about it. So first idea is that politics isn't about policy. It's about coalition building and sort of an us versus them tribalism that's extended onto a broader scale. Healthcare isn't about health. Again, yes, there is a component of healthcare that of course is about curing the sick and, and healing. 
but there's also a big part of healthcare that is about showing that we care about the sick and injured, which is something that comes back from a very earlier period of time, but has now been ramped up into the big institution that it is now. Another, and this is a hard one for me, but it's true, is that education often isn't about learning. As I'll talk about in the conversation with Robin Hansen, there are often many ways that we could improve how students learn, and many institutions don't seem that keen on applying them very aggressively. And this may be because education is more about signaling who has smarts and who doesn't than it is about actually teaching useful skills. Finally, and we touch on this with Robin Hansen because this is in his own domain, science and research isn't about progress or isn't about expanding human knowledge. It may also be that this is another function that expertise in this academic arena is about, again, showing who is high status and who has the access to prestigious affiliations and who is smart and who wants to associate with them rather than merely expanding the stock of human knowledge. So one of the big questions about this, because this is a profoundly cynical view of life, even if you accept that these hidden motivations are only a part, if not the entirety of our human psychology, is should you even listen to this? And I think we talked about earlier in my brief introduction that there's a good reason why we may not be aware of it. And so should we even be bringing up this idea? I don't really have an answer to this, and Robin and I will discuss this later on. But I think there is perhaps some benefit to seeing this in others, even if we are not really willing to hold the mirror too closely and see it in ourselves. Because of course, if you are a salesperson and you don't know why people aren't buying your product, or you're a doctor and you don't know why people aren't following your recommendations in spite of their insistent claims, then you can get very frustrated unless you realize the fact that there may be hidden motivations, there may be uh, motivations that they are not even aware of that are guiding behavior. So in the end, I do think that this is a beneficial idea, but it's not without its dangers. So with that, I will turn over now to the conversation that I had with Robin Hansen about this book and the implications of it. Well, I'm happy to welcome uh, Professor Robin Hansen here, one of the authors of The Elephant in the Brain. I think this is a very interesting book, and it's one that he himself says that he doesn't expect most people to accept all of the conclusions, yet... I think it's also one that has dramatic implications for how we live our lives and also how things like institutions work in our society. So what was your motivation for putting this book together with Kevin Simler? Well, several motivations. Perhaps uh, the main one is this is the thing I most wish I have known at the beginning of my social science career. Uh, if I had known this right from the beginning, uh, I might have avoided a lot of mistakes. Uh, mm takes a while to realize these things and and it really isn't out there and so i'm hoping now there's a thing out there i guess another way to think about it is uh imagine a 20 year old who uh you know has been hearing about all sorts of things about the world all their life and isn't quite sure what to believe and sounds like a lot of people are making stuff up and not telling the truth and they just want somewhere to, for there to be a book which like says what's really going on <laughs> no that's that's I'm very hoping that our book can can be that book for that person you can say i'm not sure you really want to know but if you really want to know <laughs> so i, I think uh, there's been a bit of a meme associated with you that uh, you are the uh, x isn't about y observation guy that you know to right. use a few examples politics isn't about policy healthcare isn't about health or education isn't about learning so some of these i think on an individual basis um 
we might kind of be like, oh yeah, we can kind of see that when we see politicians, they're not really debating policy. They're, they're kind of arguing for their team or they're arguing for their kind of role in, uh, you know, these are the people who should be important. These are the people that we should make less important. But I think if you look at this sort of trend over a lot of the X isn't about Y observations, it leads to kind of a little bit of vertigo almost that you think, wow, a lot of the things that we talk about on an object level may be have this hidden uh, underlying motivation. Now, you are someone who has discussed about this a lot, and I, I think it's safe to say that you are someone who has pretty out there ideas and things that even your fellow academics would kind of balk at, never mind ordinary people who haven't given these issues much thought. What of these observations of the X's and about Y genre do you find people have the hardest time getting on board with, yet you believe are, are sort of the majority explanation for what's going on? Well, first, I think it varies. That is, uh, people have a lot of areas to their life. And most areas of life aren't central to you and your identity. And so in these areas outside of your center, you're much more willing to believe that what goes on there is less than it seems and uh, perhaps a little fake. Uh, but if we get to something that's really close to the center of your identity, something that, that you find precious, you'll find that much harder to believe. So if you're an atheist, you will find it very easy to believe that religion maybe isn't about God. Um, but if you are a healthcare professional, you might find it very disturbing to think that uh, medicine isn't about health. Or if you're an academic, you find, find it disturbing to hear that research isn't about uh, progress or insight uh, because that's precious to you. So I think it will vary by person to person here which topic they'll find most surprising and hard to believe. But if we average over people, I think the medicine chapter is probably the hardest to believe, at least for people in rich societies like the United States today. Mm -hmm. So this is something I think, again, like you said, it, it reflects what is core to your identity of, of who you are. That's an interesting observation. Now, you are someone who you've had kind of an interesting career background. I'm, I might be getting some of this wrong, but I believe you uh, studied physics and then you did work in artificial intelligence before at a fairly later age, uh, switching to becoming an academic in e economics and social science. So you have sort of varied background. How do you find this affects you when you think about, you know, the role of academia in, uh, in the sort of society as well as the role of even just being a person who generates intellectual ideas for a living, um, you know, do you feel like there's a tension? Do you feel like you've accepted it? Or do you feel like you just sort of accept that there's going to be some parts that, you know, I'm going to maybe operate this way on a deeper level, but on the surface level, I kind of have to hold these beliefs that I'm working towards intellectual progress or something like that. Well, in all of these areas, the reason why people behave the way they do is because the social incentives push them that way on average. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is, even if you don't believe that medicine is very effective for health, you still kind of have to buy it for your family and, and uh, work colleagues. Otherwise, they will think less of you and feel that you don't care about them. Similarly, even if you don't think you'll have much influence on politics and, and the outcomes, you still need to act as if you care and as if you thought you had an influence. Otherwise, the people around you may think you are just uncaring about your society and, and it's the consequences for it. And so... <laughs> You know, for the most part, uh, if you want to get along, you should probably just do what most everybody does and uh, not tell them it's all fake. <laughs> uh, they, that won't go over well, very well in most you know, concrete cases. Um, and so similarly for me, if, if I want to, uh, you know, be different, I, I need to pick my battles. I, I, I'm not going to just, 
you know, be different on everything in my life. I'm, for most areas of my life, I'm going to go along with the usual story. I'm going to buy my family health insurance. I'm even going to go to the doctor myself sometimes. I'm just going to, on the margin, back off and do it less mm, mm. And, and maybe not be so concerned about it. Um, I'll, I still send my kids to school. Uh, even if, um, you know, school isn't about learning, it is a route to success in our society. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I wasn't really ready to, to send them away from school. So, um, you know, when we get to my areas where I might consider things to be especially sacred or precious, um, these results will tell me I can't see myself as part of this large enterprise where most people in the whole enterprise are pursuing this goal uh, honestly and effectively. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if I want to see myself as an altruist, for example, I can't see the whole world of charity as, as with me together in this enterprise. I may have to see most of the world of charity as being somewhat fake. And if, if there's going to be a world that I'm going to be proud of being part of, it'll have to be much somewhat smaller world that I've more carefully uh, joined and, and constructed even to, uh, to be more actually helpful than the rest of charity is. Similarly, in research, if most research really isn't about intellectual progress or insight, it's just about you know adding more people to the pile and onto the Vita so you get publications and, and jobs and prestige, then... If I want to produce intellectual progress and insight, I'll have to see myself as uh, more on the margin, not part of a big enterprise where everybody will help me, but more having to do it myself and and more, I'm not really going to expect reward from that. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I do successfully produce insight uh, that could produce progress, uh, the world may just ignore that and that may just be how that game goes. So I think this is one of the big issues that I've kind of struggled with in sort of reading your work. And I think this book did something to address it. But I think at the technical level, I'm, I'm very interested. I'm not sure whether you have on this, but I could see kind of two sort of models of how the human mind works, which could kind of account for this. So one idea is that we're a sort of a, a tension between these sort of more higher, sincere motives, and it's being undercut by... Uh, less sincere, faker motives, like the ones we're talking about, the elephant in the brain, so to speak. So this could be, for instance, that, well, we do care about, you know, people's health, but at the same time, we really care about showing that we care. And so often that motivation to have healthier people is undercut by this other motive to uh, show that we care. And sometimes that latter motive wins, particularly if, you know, the incentives are lined up in that sort of way. So that's, that's one model, the idea that there's some kind of internal tension between a a sincere motive and and a kind of opportunistic or selfish motive but another model could be that there it's kind of selfish all the way down and that we're just deceiving ourselves that there are sincere motives that these sincere motives are just the kind of pr of our brain trying to speak for ourselves so what do you think is maybe more likely and if you were to sort of describe a ratio do you think that there's a case that there is a tension or do you feel like it's overwhelmingly uh, the selfish motives being recast in a, an altruistic light? Well, um, we say that the excuse that the dog ate my homework only really works because sometimes dogs <laughs> eat homework. Uh, if dogs never ate homework or you don't have a dog, it doesn't really work mm-hmm. as an excuse. So the various excuses we use, like going to school to learn or going to the doctor to get healthy, do function as excuses because they are, in part, sometimes true. Uh, So in all areas, big areas of of human behavior, they are all really complicated. All the people involved are really complicated. So in essence, a lot of different motives are relevant. And the only real question is the mix. 
almost any possible relevant motive could be relevant somewhere mm -hmm. so, at some point. Uh, so when we look at our behavior, we know that there are all these possible motives, um, and we are trying to spin the best motive we can usually. And so we pick from among the plausible motives that, that aren't crazy, the best looking ones. And the ones that will you know, defend us best against accusations of violating norms. And that's what we prefer to point to. And the claim of our book is that, yes, that's what we prefer to point to, but it's mm -hmm. less than we say. That doesn't mean zero, it means less. And these other motives we have are, uh, they're related and tied. So if I say, you know, I have this motive to uh, help somebody uh, get health care because uh, I want them to get better. That's in part true. And then I say, I have this motive for them to know <laughs> that I put this effort in to, to help them. Well, that's somewhat related. And you might even sort of classify it as just a sort of a side effect or a, a related subsidiary motive. Uh, but then eventually, of course, it could be that you only really care about um, having them appearance of helping and the actual helping is not very important at all to you. That, that's a possibility, at least. So the, uh, the whole mix is there. And um, the most high-minded, altruistic, best motives do exist to some percentage. And even in ourselves, uh, we have different layers. So at the conscious level of our mind, we are more often sincerely trying to help and trying to do good and trying to learn and uh, trying to get well, et cetera. And it's these underlying layers of our mind that systematically <laughs> shift our behavior to something more effective at other goals. And we often don't even notice the conflict. And if we do, we're puzzled and confused and we struggle a bit to try to overcome it and we fail and we wonder why we fail so much to, to do this thing we thought we wanted to do when something inside us keeps pushing the other way. So one of the, uh, I guess, questions that I have, and this is something that I, I've heard on your blog discussed frequently, that this is a frequent pundit kind of discussion point on a lot of your ideas, namely these sort of X's into about Y, meaning the X is something kind of high and vaunted, and the Y is maybe something a little bit more cynical or a little bit more selfish. And you've you've mentioned before that you're, you're less interested perhaps on whether these uh, Y motivations or these sort of less uh, sincere, less honest motivations are conscious or not, mainly like in the model, whether or not you are consciously aware that you're actually trying to pursue this sort of uh, somewhat um, somewhat secretive agenda is not as important for you in your in your ideas of discussing the implications of this book. Whereas I think for me and for everyone else, this is sort of the dominant idea is like, are, are you conscious of it? Are you aware that you are doing this? Or is it something that you can be kind of less blamed for? So what do you think is the difference between your thinking on this issue as someone who's these ideas for a lot longer that someone like myself or someone who had raised this kind of, are we conscious of it or not, uh, maybe is missing or, or maybe how I should change my thinking to kind of understand your viewpoint? Well, it's, I'm not want to say that's an illegitimate question or a senseless question. It's a perfectly understandable question. And it's a question that we should get around to at some point answering. Uh, the issue here is more the priority of what to do first. And then mm -hmm. what are your motivations for asking the question? So uh, at the very basic level, uh, you know, we all talk as if we go to the doctor to get well. And we set up this institution on the surface as if that was the purpose. And then we start to notice all these ways in which we're not achieving that function and we seem to be achieving other functions. 
And uh, that's the first level thing to notice is that uh, not only are we failing to achieve the thing we say we're trying to achieve, it's not just a random error and mistakes. We are also apparently systematically achieving other things in, in a patterned way, in a, in a way that requires some effort and structure, not just an accident. So that means there's some sort of force out there inside of us, inside something <laughs> that's uh, driving us to make the choices that achieve these other ends. And that's the first highest level uh, thing to notice. And the evidence for that is just the evidence of what we actually do, the actions we actually take and their actual consequences. Um, you know, that once we know that somehow we are helping, say, to show other people that we care about them and to let them show that we care about us, that's an effect of our behavior that seems consistent and seems to explain our behavior. Well, then a secondary question is, well, where does that come from? Where inside us exactly is that? And, and then there's the you know question of how conscious are we of this motive or plan? And again, it's not a senseless question. It's just not necessarily the first question to ask. The first thing to notice is, in fact, we're, we're not achieving one thing and we are achieving another thing. And uh, that could possibly explain so a lot of things. So would you say that we the issue is that by. people are too quick to jump from the idea that people have perhaps selfish motives into the blaming mindset of like, well, who do we blame for this? Who's morally culpable for this distraction? And you right. think well, we should look so, at it more at like, what's the effect of this? So, I mean, our theory says that the reason that we're not aware of these selfish motives is exactly because we're afraid of being accused of violating norms. And that's why our mind has hidden them from us so that we can credibly deny that. So if that's the main reason that we're hiding these things from us, it's quite plausible and in fact a prediction of the theory <laughs> that if uh, I write a book and I start to talk to you about these other motives and that they might be inside you, your first response will be to try to defend yourself against this accusation. <laughs> uh, and if you can't defend yourself against the like the overall accusation that you are somehow effectively achieving these ends, you might say, well, the next best thing is to defend yourself against, at least against the accusation that you're doing this consciously. Because in many of our norms, we, we let people off a lot more for doing things unconsciously than consciously. Mm. And this is in the law as well as in other social practice. Uh, an intentional crime is uh, punished more severely than an accidental crime. Mm -hmm. Or even an accident that's not quite an accident because <laughs> subconsciously you kind of wanted right. it and you kind of encouraged it. Right, right. Just uh, the kind of premeditation is uh, a big part of increasing the culpability of certain crimes. Right. And that's also true in these norm violations. So, um, you know, if I hit you accidentally, that's okay. If I hit you on purpose, that's not. If I hit you accidentally, but it's a lot more likely that I hit you accidentally when I'm kind of mad at you. <laughs> right, right. Well, they could still say, yeah, yeah, maybe the being mad at you was contributing, but it's still I didn't really intend it. It mm -hmm. wasn't conscious, at least. So one of the things that, again, uh, and perhaps we can talk a little bit about this, if we assume that there is a kind of general cynical backing behind these kind of things, why are we sometimes blinded to this kind of cynical behavior in others. Do you believe it's just because it's symmetric that by accusing other people of cynicism that by virtue of like looking into your own mind implies that you have a lot more of these lower motives than, than you think? If you were a high-minded person, you'd also assume other people are high-minded. Why aren't we, like I can understand why we would be uh, sincere about ourselves, but why aren't we more cynical about other people? Well, the, there is a substantial correlation. <laughs> if other people go to the doctor just to you know show that they care, then that becomes more plausible about you. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, there's the standard observation that people don't like cynics. Mm -hmm. uh, and, the, and the usual counter to a cynic, uh, a cynic sort of offers a low or negative uh, view of the motives of somebody else. And people usually say, well, the reason that you have that perception is that you're just projecting yourself. Mm -hmm. You have those low motives, and you can therefore more see them more clearly than other people. I, the high-minded person, of course, who has these high motives, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that anybody would even think that anybody would have any other motive <laughs> because uh, this seems so natural to me uh, that everybody would be like me and having these high motives that I'm shocked, just shocked that I see any indication of anything else. So one of the goals of your book was to talk about how this affects us at the institutional level. And maybe we can talk a little bit about the individual level later, since I believe most of my readers are not policy makers or, or you know, uh, working at think tanks, deciding how to decide healthcare policy or the future of democracy. But at the same time, you sort of take a little bit of a stance that maybe this status quo, this idea that we have these hidden motives and we don't always act on them is optimal from kind of the way we live our lives individually, but maybe when they accrue all these sort of um, unconscious errors, we lead to designing institutions that uh, really fail us at such a large level that we can't afford to uh, look the other way and pretend like the situation is different from it actually is. So uh, one of the things I'm wondering, and this is probably one of the biggest barriers, is that, well, ultimately, anyone who's going to design the institutions or, or operate in them or act as the agents in these, these institutions or organizations are in a similar position. They're also in this situation where they, if they confront their own elephant, if they become kind of a little bit more cynical about their behavior and other people's behavior, um, then they get the same kind of accusations thrown at them. So how, how do we possibly escape this trap or, or should we be trying to escape this trap and is there some way around it? Well, when you are a professional in a particular subfield, uh, you are more often held to the standards of that subfield than you would be from uh, how a person in a larger world would see you. So uh, most of us would find it pretty uncomfortable to, uh, say, deal with dead bodies. Mm -hmm. and, if, and if I showed you that I was just very comfortable dealing with dead bodies, you might think I'm kind of weird and, and, and <laughs> back mm -hmm. away from me. <laughs> But if I'm a mortician and it's my job to deal with dead bodies, then um, you might be more comfortable with me being comfortable with that. And I might be expected to be comfortable with that being around other morticians. That's just what you expect from a mortician. That's the kind of thing within the professional world. Similarly, we economists are, are known for being somewhat more cynical about some parts of the world, at least. And uh, within an economics community, that's kind of expected. That's what you're supposed to be to be an economist. And other people might learn that about us and, and be somewhat more wary of us because we're economists. But then by classifying us as economists, they might say, well, yeah, but that's just what an economist is like. So I think um, there's more prospect for particular expert communities acknowledging these hidden motives, uh, especially when they're not about themselves personally. They're about the larger mm -hmm. social world. And I think they have more of an obligation or uh, we should expect them more to confront to know about these things. So you and I go to the doctor, uh, our, our relative gets sick, our, our grandmother gets sick, then we uh, want to push them to get more care. And if we don't, uh, the rest of our family will wonder if we don't care about our grandma. We're kind of stuck in that. We kind of have to do that. But people who do medical policy or health policy, uh, they have more of an opportunity to create an internal um, community expectation that they have a certain more cynical attitudes about medicine because that's what their expert judgment has shown them. And I think we should want them to 
be more realistic about what's really going on in the world if they're going to be the experts we rely on to tell us about uh, how to reform or change uh, these parts of the world. So this leads to, I think, uh, an interesting follow-up question, and this is something I think you've also discussed, again, I believe on your blog, not uh, in the book itself, but was the issue of professionals, um, not social scientists, but professionals uh, kind of being in charge of their own domain at an institutional level. So for instance, the people who are determining healthcare policy are medical professionals or doctors or these kind of people. And this logic suggests that there's a possible danger of that because, you know, these are the people who are most invested in, you know, keeping down the elephant right like you can't have a doctor that says well you're just here for a little like kiss on the knee these are the people who have to believe that they're there to save lives and to improve health and and that people that's what they want from their doctors uh if they have a cynical perspective it would be kind of disastrous for them so does this suggest that perhaps we should be rethinking how we do institutions where there are kind of people who are allowed to be more cynical that, you know, are, are kind of making institutional decisions and having the kind of domain experts a little bit more operating in the craft? Like, what do you think about that? Well, most people who do policy analysis in an area aren't practitioners of that area. So and in practice, uh, people who do health policy just aren't the doctors that you meet in the office. Mm-hmm. People who do education policy aren't the teacher in your classroom. Uh, they're usually just two separate groups of people. Uh, but I guess you might point to the problem that you know, when we hire education policy experts or medical policy experts, we often like them to uh, share our ideals. Mm-hmm. And we might be put off by them not sharing ideals. So there's a more fundamental question of when can there be experts about policy who are allowed to tell the truth to each other? Mm-hmm. If, if, if what they say is too visible to the ultimate customer who has too strong a preference for it fitting what you know, the story they want to hear, then it doesn't work to have experts, basically. Uh, there's, you know, there's a strong pressure for them to say whatever the public thinks. And, and this is a basic issue about expertise. Um, in general, uh, when someone directly hires an expert, um, that expert really only has an incentive to uh, learn the sorts of things that the client might eventually know. And everything else, they don't really have much of an incentive to know. And then the client has preconceptions. Uh, they are really punished for violating the client's preconceptions unless they can somehow prove to the client they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that means often when we hire experts, uh, either we need a, to have a way the experts can just show this that they're right and, and earn our respect and then we can just believe them, or we end up hiring experts who pander to us and tell us what we want to hear even when they know it's not true. <laughs> um, it's a basic problem when hiring experts. So um, you know, that's an issue to deal with in thinking about any kinds of expertise. And there's no easy solutions. Uh, there are the standard sort of set of hard solutions that uh, we often don't even apply those. So this is one of the things uh, you've kind of spent a lot of your work uh, is investing in kind of, you could say, innovative. Other people would maybe describe them as being weird uh, social innovation. So these are kind of technological solutions to particular problems of information or management. Uh, I know one that you've particularly championed has been prediction markets. But these are things that to the average person, um, they're very wonkish, they're very kind of technical, but they're often, they themselves seem to violate norms. I know one that you brought up on your blog recently was sort of a, a, 
an innovation or a new formula for perhaps handling uh, law. And even though I share kind of similar kind of wonkish systematic sort of thinking, even for me, there were some points of that that seemed kind of like struck me at the core of like, oh, I don't know whether I can accept that. And so your one of your explanations for why this might be is this elephant in the brain um, that we have kind of these somewhat insincere motivations for pursuing things. And so if we try to solve the problem on its face, but then undermine the sort of secret problem we're trying to solve, we're going to lead to people being unhappy, even though we're kind of following their express wishes. Um, maybe you could just explain a little bit about how this kind of conclusion of this being a dominant motive in your own work has come up. So years ago, I started out in uh, engineering and then physics, and then I did computer science uh, for nine years. And in those worlds, I noticed that people are eager for innovation, <laughs> eager for new kinds of physical devices and software structures that achieve the sort of goals they say they're trying to achieve. And then when I moved into social science, I noticed that uh, there seemed to be some really big improvements possible, much larger than I could find in, in physics or uh, computer science. And that was exciting, and that was uh, motivated me to move into this area to try to realize some of these huge gains. And over time, I came to realize that the reason why it seems easier to find really large gains in social sciences and policy is that they are very rarely adopted. <laughs> they just the gains just sit there for a long time, never being realized. Um, and that's a puzzle. Uh, and I think it's a puzzle that's really striking, but it's only really visible to people who have both been in physical and uh, software worlds and seeing the eagerness for innovation there and also been in the policy or social worlds where we see the lack of eagerness for innovation. It's not that it's impossible to kind of come up with innovations and or impossible to show that they work. We, we do have a lot of things that would seem to work and we have a lot of ways to show that they work and there's still very little interest. And this whole book is part of the explanation for that, which is why I said I wish I would have known this at the beginning of my career. I think this mistake we're making is that in social science, we're taking people at their word for the main goal. We're designing reforms that better achieve that thing they say they want. And at some level, they know it's really not what they really want. And so they're not really very interested. Do so you have any they concrete can, examples of where you've found well, that sure. happen, where you, you've kind of designed a system that this would be much better for this, but then now you believe, well, actually, they're not trying to optimize that. And that's why there was low adoption. I, you know, I can first give you examples of other people. It doesn't no, no, have to no be problem. me personally. Uh, the education you know, policy industry, people have worked for many decades to come up with ways to reorganize classroom and learning materials so that students could learn faster. And they found a lot of them, a lot of relatively large improvements. There's a lot of ways to help students learn faster. And consistently, schools have just been uninterested, uninterested in adopting those things. Uh, they don't actually seem to try very hard to help students learn things faster. You're uh, even better and more effectively um, because apparently uh, they don't think that's a priority. Uh, early in my you know, social science career, I, I realized that there would be a very simple way to create an incentive contract in medicine. That is to set up a, a contract where your doctor would just get paid when you're healthier. And uh, then if you can set up that contract, well, now you don't have to monitor them very closely or decide how expert they are, you'll know that uh, they have a strong financial incentive to uh, figure out what works and to do it for you. And I thought, well, that sounds great. And it seems like a huge reform. And you know, when I started talking to other people, I found out that they just had very little interest. It wasn't a matter of not understanding it or even not supporting the goal. They just mm. didn't care. And uh, 
you know, I've taught health economics many times as a professor and, and found the same sort of thing. And again, I can go over many other variations. Uh, I teach law and economics. And uh, one of the big problems in the law is law is very expensive. And uh, we find it, you know, therefore, a lot of people can't really use the legal system to get justice because it just costs too much. And uh, if you, you know, offer people ways that the legal system could be much cheaper without at all compromising the quality of its decisions, um, people are not interested <laughs> and actually a bit reluctant and resistant. They, they find that so a bit scary. That, that uh, raises so sort again. of another question because my sort of intuitive understanding of this is that like we're all, you know, even the most progressive or, you know, people of us, we're all quite strong social conservatives that like we have a strong fear of social innovation, even if you look at our sort of dystopian novels, they're not about technology usually for the dystopian nature of the technology itself, but what is the impact on society? How does that change the social contract in a way that's dystopian? So it might, you know, one of my thinkings is that because these ideas that you're proposing don't exist, we might have kind of a natural immunity to people suggesting changes in the normal social contract because we might, again, for the same reasons, suspect that, oh, well, this person is suggesting a change in the social contract. I don't really know the outcomes, but I don't know whether I can trust them that they're going to be uh, doing things uh, for the best interest or for that kind of thing. So how do you weigh this sort of elephant in the brain kind of people don't want to reform healthcare because the thing that they want is actually already being optimized and the thing that they say that they want that your reform would happen uh, is like that they're happy with the status quo versus your sort of proposed solution versus just a simple reluctance to consider innovations broadly in a social sphere just because of this kind of status quo bias or that we want to keep things the same because there's this risk of, you know, too much change in this in the social contract might create these problems. Well, that's where the physical and software analogs are helpful mm -hmm. as comparison. So if you think about the physical world that we live in and the physical devices around us, um, substituting new physical devices for the ones we have and new software de uh, devices and, and structures for the ones we have are dangerous and expensive changes. Uh, and mostly they fail. Um, that's also true even in medicine. Um, we have lots of other areas of our life where even though change is difficult, expensive, dangerous, uh, and typically you know, fails, we still put in the effort to try out and eventually succeed in getting innovations. This is the consistent pattern in all the other areas of our life. I, I don't really think you can claim that uh, social change is inherently more risky than say a nuclear power plant or a new kind of surgery or a new piece of software that runs an airplane. These are all <laughs> things that are expensive and risky. Nevertheless, we continue to create such innovations to test them out and to adopt them uh, when they pass our various tests. Uh, whereas in software, we don't. So, I'm mean, sorry, in, in social world, we don't. There's something different about the social world. And it's not that the social world is particularly risky or that most innovations fail or that uh, you, know, you just get used to things you don't want to change. Those are all true in these other domains. Well, this leads to one of the questions that I often ask at the end of these discussions is what is the practical significance of these ideas? I mean, how will knowing about the elephant in your brain or this idea that there are elephants in many people's brains that they're not aware of that are guiding their motivations, how will this affect their their actions they take in the world or the way that they see the world that could be beneficial? If you're a policy analyst, 
then you can use the results in our book to understand how these major areas of life are actually different than the way people have assumed that school is different than you thought that hospitals are different than you thought and that should dramatically change how you think about analyzing those but what if you're not a policy analyst what if you're just an ordinary person well plausibly the reason why most people are ignorant of these things is evolution has decided that that's roughly in your interest <laughs> Uh, that you do better in interacting with others if you sincerely pretend that uh, you don't know anything about it. So on average, uh, maybe we're doing you a disservice by telling you about this if your life is really roughly what evolution expected. But maybe evolution didn't quite get it right. Maybe you are a manager or a salesperson, somebody who especially needs to understand the motives of people around you in order to do your job. Uh, maybe it's worth it for you to see and understand the real motivations, at least of other people that you interact with. Um, maybe you're just sort of a contrarian who um, really wants to understand the world and is really puzzled by the fact that uh, so many things don't make sense. And for you, the satisfaction of just understanding the world will outweigh the fact that maybe you won't be able to pretend as easily as everybody else. Or you might just be a nerd like me. You might be unusually socially unskilled and everybody else can just smoothly move through the social world, uh, roughly doing the right thing without really knowing why. Uh, but for you, that just doesn't seem to work. And so for you, you might need to explicitly try to understand the world in order to be able to navigate it. And yes, you'll pay the cost of finding it harder to be uh, pretend that you have the usual motives and, and be idealistic, but still, it, it may not be going very well uh, trying to pretend lacking social skills, and maybe you should just pay the cost of figuring out what's really happening. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Robin. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, discuss this. This is a very interesting book, and I really hope that people read it and think about it and maybe uh, will change some of their ideas, at least in how they view other people, if not themselves. Thank you.